for our folks headed to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church who dismissed to head back that way. For the folks who will be remaining in here, Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect and offer them before the Lord. And then the sons of Israel and then to the sons of Israel, you shall speak, saying, take a male goat for a sin offering. And a calf and a lamb, both one year old, without defect for a burnt offering. And an ox and a ram for a peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord. And a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded. To the front of the tent of the meeting, a whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do. That the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses then said to Aaron, come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them, just as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And Aaron's son presented the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put some on the horns of the altar. He poured the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And the fat and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver of the sin offering, he then offered up in smoke on the altar, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And the flesh and the skin, however, he burned out uh, with fire outside of the camp. And then he slaughtered the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed blood to him and he sprinkled it around on the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him in pieces with the head and he offered them on, uh, up in the smoke on the altar. He also washed the entrails and the legs and offered them up in smoke with a burnt offering on the altar. And then he presented the people's offering and he took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people. And he slaughtered it and offered it for sin, just like the first. And he also presented the burnt offering and he offered it according to the ordinance. Next, he presented the grain offering and filled his hands with some of it and offered it in smoke on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. And then he slaughtered the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of peace offerings for which was for the people. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to him and he sprinkled it around the altar. As for the portions of fat, which uh, is from the ox and the ram and the fat tail and the fat covering and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver. They now placed the portions of fat on the breast and he offered them in smoke on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron presented as a wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses had commanded And then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And then they came out and blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for um, this incredible story, this incredible reality, this first time of the sacrifices being made. Father, may, may we glean great things about the Lord Jesus Christ from this text today. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So 
this is a this is a unique story. <clears throat> because until this point, Leviticus has really just been a sharing of a legal code. It's just basically been like a book of laws. And um, I know some of you here in the congregation uh, are are lawyers, your attorneys, and you had to spend a substantial amount of time reading through codes and laws and that sort of thing. Um, I've done a little bit of that just for some other thing that I did one time. Um, I love to read. I love to do research. I love to find out about stuff. Law and code books. Mm. That's hard to wade through. It's one of the reasons why people have a hard time getting through Leviticus and Numbers when they're reading through the Bible. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like when you tried to read like the property code laws in Texas, you know. Yeah, I know. Somebody even moaned. They heard, oh, you know. Um, and, and, and some people love it. And I'm so glad that you do. Like, I'm not belittling it. Like, we need people who like this really gets them riled up when they're like, hey, man, section eight. Article 3, part 37, B-A squared minus 2 to my second cousin's dog's vet. Like, this is what it says. I'm so glad for you people. I really am. Because that, I just... mm -mm. But to this point, that's kind of what Leviticus has been. It's been a book of code. This is what you do with this kind of offering. This is what you do with that kind of offering. This is what you do when you have this sort of thing happen. This is what you do when the priest does this. This is when you do when the priest does that. This is what you do when it's just been kind of the what you do and what you don't do. And then we get to the narrative section. Like this is the first real narrative section in this book of law. It starts to tell us a story. And the story that it tells us is, all right, we've got all these offerings, and we've got set apart the priest, and we've got these things that you're supposed to do, and what you're going to do at the tabernacle, and the setting up, all that kind of stuff. And so now we get to the place where they do it for the first time. This is not saying that sacrifices have never been made before. They have. You can go back to Genesis and Exodus, and you can see sacrifices have been made before. This is the first time, under the organized structure of the Levitical law, that sacrifices were made according to the way God commanded for them to be made in the worship of the traveling tabernacle for the nation of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. So this is organized. This is incredibly structured is what this is. And so it's, it's, it's interesting. So let's see what happens here. There's a setting apart of the priest and... The first sacrifices. So to our knowledge, as I just mentioned, these are the first sacrifices given in the tabernacle under the Levitical system. That's what this is. And what happens? Like if I'm going to summarize this whole chapter, here it is. The priests were set apart and both they and the people had sacrifices made for them. Now we're going to beat the Methodist to the buffet because that's the whole of chapter nine, basically. But something really weird and unexpected happens the first time they make these sacrifices. And the key is, and this is where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. The key is Leviticus 9, 22 through 24, right at the very end. Because basically 9, 1 through 9, 21 is them doing everything that they were told to do in Leviticus 1 through 8. That's basically what it is. It's like, hey, here's the rules for this sacrificial system. 
Okay, now we actually need to do it. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 21, them doing all the stuff they were told in Leviticus 1 through 8. That's the summation of it. So we could walk back through point by point. And if you're a first time guest, I apologize. But we've been through this a lot over the past several weeks of what the sacrifices are like and why they are the way that they are and what they include and don't include and why they would do certain ones at certain times in certain ways and what the priests were and weren't supposed to do and what the people were and weren't supposed to do. We've walked through a lot of that. So there's no need to recap weeks and weeks and weeks worth of stuff. It is them doing it for the first time. But then something very unexpected happened. Beginning in verse 22. Let's, this is where we want to hang out is these three verses. And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron. Notice this. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So let's walk through these three verses and let's see What makes this event so unique besides the obvious? First, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Now, Moses and Aaron are of the same tribe. Moses could have been a priest according to all these regulations. But Moses was not. Nowhere do we have Moses being set apart For the priesthood. We have Moses setting apart Aaron and his sons for the priesthood. But Moses himself is never designated as a priest. Moses is called many things in the scripture. Never a priest. So why would a non-priest. Who's not been set apart for the priesthood. Go into the tabernacle. Into the holy place. With the first official high priest of the nation of Israel. It's very unexpected. It's very unique. There's nothing in Leviticus 1 through 8 that justifies this action at all. Because it was very clear that the one who was going to be a priest had to have a certain kind of ordaining. Certain kind of clothing, covering with the blood on the finger and the ear and the toe and all the different stuff. Certain kinds of sacrifices made on their behalf. And all of that happened for Aaron and all of that happened for Aaron's sons. The fact it just happened at the end of chapter 8 and now here at the beginning of chapter 9. But Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle after making these offerings. What's that about? Well, we need to understand the roles that Moses and Aaron are playing. Moses is the lawgiver. Never forget that. Of all the things that Moses is and all the things that Moses does, first and foremost above everything else, Moses is the lawgiver. He goes up on the mountain. You remember the story from the Exodus? He fasts. 
He meets with God. God gives him a tab- tablets of stone marked out by God's own hand. God gives him instruction on what the tabernacle is supposed to be like and the materials it's supposed to be made of. And Moses is the one who receives the law from God to then give that law to the people of God. Moses is the lawgiver all throughout the New Testament. The law is equated with the person of Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. That's who he is. And then what does that make Aaron? It makes Aaron the law fulfiller. The one who fulfills the law. Because how, how, do, these, how do these worship sessions and sacrifices have to take place? According to the law that's been given, it has to take place through the mediation of a priest. That's built into this law that's been given. So in order for the law to be properly fulfilled, a priest is required. So Moses gives the law, Aaron fulfills the law. You say, Philip, why is that such a big deal? Well, we'll get to that in a second. I want you to notice what happened. The law giver and the law fulfiller go into the holy place. They come out of that holy place and they bless the people. They bless the people. The one who gives the law and the one who fulfills the law bless the people of God. Friends, this and this is... You don't have to wait long of why this is important. This is incarnational language. The tabernacle was the place of God dwelling with mankind. That's what it was. That's what it was set apart to be. It is where the people of God met with the presence of God in this earthly realm. That's what it was. Okay? You mean, I need some indication that people are... Okay, good. All right. So this is what the tabernacle was. It's where the people of God met with the presence of God. All right. So you have the lawgiver, the law fulfiller coming out of the place where the people meet with God. Those that represented God, the lawgiver and the law fulfiller came out to the people. The people could not go to where God was, so God, in a representative form, came to the people. Does that sound like anybody else that you've heard of before? We can't go where God is. So God came where we are. And we can't approach God the way He is, So God approached us the way that we are. This is the exact picture and type and shadow and representation that is happening in the book of Leviticus right now. God established a sacred space and God set apart sacred people. And those sacred people engaged the people of God on God's behalf. And those people, listen, listen, this is the beautiful thing about Moses and Aaron, those people represented the giver of the law 
and the fulfiller of the law. So that God, what does Paul say about this? So that God in Christ might be both the just, the lawgiver, and the justifier, the law fulfiller. That's what Christ came to do. Because it's Christ's law. He is the word of God. All of these sacrifices have represented the person and work of Christ on the cross. That's what they are preshadowing. That's what they're announcing. That's what they're pointing to. And the one who's given us the law is also the one who will fulfill the law for us. And so when this incarnational event happened, the place where God meets with us here in the earthly realm, as represented by, as represented by the law giver and the law fulfiller, and they come and they bless the people, what happens? The glory of the Lord appeared. That's what happened. Now, I, I want to say, there are a lot of times in the scripture, and we don't have time to go through it this morning, If you want to run them all down, by all means, it'll be worth your while. But there are a lot of times in the scripture where people come to the tabernacle at first, to the temple later on, to make sacrifices, and the glory of God does not appear. In fact, you could argue that that happens less often than the glory of God appearing when sacrifices are made. They go out of their way to point out the times that God's glory appears when sacrifices are made. We can assume that the absence of declaring the glory of God being present, that the glory of God was not present at many of those other times. It's a marked out intentional big deal in the Old Testament when the glory of God appears. They go out of their way to tell us This event happened. And it occurs at this moment. The first time they ever make these sacrifices. When the giver of the law and the fulfiller of the law. At the place where God meets humanity in this human earthly realm. Steps out and blesses his people. The glory of God appears. And friends. I I want you to know. That all throughout the scripture. The glory of the Lord is manifest most perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, even more difficult and more time consuming to run down than what I was just talking about is for you to run through all of the scriptures in the Old and the New Testament where it talks about The glory of God, the glory of the Lord, the manifestation of the glory of God. There's a lot of different ways that it expresses it and talks about it. There's close to a hundred occasions in just the New Testament alone where it talks about on some level the glory of God. As many or more in the Old Testament. It's a really key concept In the Judeo-Christian reality. And when we get to the New Testament. The most preeminent thought 
of the, of the display of the glory of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It is not by accident that this heightened incarnational moment where God meets with people in the earthly realm in sacred space, represented by a lawgiver and a law fulfiller, having made the appropriate sacrifices. By the way, pretty much every sacrifice named in the first six chapters of Leviticus happened all at one time at this event, which is unheard of through the rest of their history of sacrifice giving. But pretty much every type of sacrifice... The burnt offering, the guilt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, the grain offering. They are all given here in this moment. Every little wrinkle of how those represent the glory of Christ done at one time while the lawgiver and the law fulfiller stand at the precipice of the presence of God among his people to bless them by the worship that has just happened. And the glory of the Lord appears. So we're going to do a little Bible drill action this morning. Because of the hundreds that we could go to, there's about seven or eight or nine that we're going to look at. So first, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. <coughs> Luke chapter 24, the key verse that I want us to note is verse 26. But I I, I want you to see, I want you to see. In context, this is during the resurrection. If you were to go back to verse 19, they, they, he asked them, what things are you talking about? They said, the things of Jesus, the Nazarene who's a, a prophet mighty indeed in word and sight of God and all the people and the chief priest and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. We were hoping he was the one. Some of the women said they went there and the tomb was empty. They didn't find his body. And then we get to verse 25. And he says, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to this. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? What are these things? The stuff that happened on the cross. His fulfillment of the Levitical sacrificial system. The lawgiver and the law fulfiller. But one person doing them both. Because friends, Moses very well could have just been the high priest too, but he wasn't. Why? Because Jesus in every way is greater than Moses. And Jesus in every way is greater than Aaron. And he's greater than both of them together. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to do what? You say this is supposed to be about glory. And then to do what? And to enter into his what? Glory. Friends, the New Testament equates the death and resurrection of Christ, which is the ultimate display of the fulfillment of everything that is in the Old Covenant. All of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. That is demonstrated in his death, burial, and resurrection. Everything from Malachi back 
is stamped a yes in the life of Jesus Christ because of his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And through the suffering of the cross, the fulfillment of the sacrifices of the book of Leviticus, Christ Jesus has now entered into his glory. The glory of the presence of God. And notice what Jesus does to help them understand. Say, Philip, you're stretching. No, I'm not. I'm doing exactly what Jesus did. Look at the very next verse. And beginning with who? Moses. And then with all the prophets. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. But he started with Moses. He said, if you want to see me as the fulfillment of the glory of God. Let's just turn in our Bibles to the books of Moses. Which I'm going to go ahead and tell you, he would not have skipped Leviticus like we often do. First book that Jewish boys and girls would learn as children, the book of Leviticus. Notice, if you will, as we turn forward, Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Let's flip forward. See what Paul has to say. Second Thessalonians. <clears throat> We're going to go to chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 14 is key, but we want to look around it just a little bit. In verse 13 it says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Awesome, powerful verse. It's fantastic. I love it. And then notice what it says in verse 14. It was for this. He called you through our gospel. All right. Paul's about to say, look, here's one of the reasons why God saved you. Because I know a lot of times, if you're like me, you look at your life and you go, why in the world did God save me? Nothing really savable here. Nothing really worthwhile saving here. I'm a wretch like any other person that I know. And there's a lot of people that I've known in my life who are still living in the wretchedness of their sin. And have not been delivered by the work of God in Christ. Why in the world did God save me? Well, Paul gives us a reason here. And it's for this that he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if you want to see how much more amazing Christ is than Moses and Aaron. If you want to see how much more amazing the new and better covenant is than the old covenant that it has fulfilled and gone beyond. Then you see it right here. When Moses and Aaron came out and blessed the people. When Moses went and got into the presence of God and had to veil his face because the glory of God shone so brightly on his face that it was too bright for people to look at him. When the people saw the fire fall and burn the offering and they were terrified and wanted to flee away. Moses and Aaron did not then initiate the entire nation of Israel 
into the priesthood to come on inside of the holiest place and be priests. They didn't share glory with them. But when the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the sacrifices of the Levitical system and he died that wretched death and he was raised again to glorious new life and he reaches out to us through the power of his own word by way of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit and he saves us from darkness into marvelous light. One, not the only, but one of the chief reasons why he has done that for us is that he might share his glory with us. And make us to be a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Jesus said, I've gone in here and I've done all the work. And I want you to enjoy all the victory. It's incredible. Kick over to... um, Hebrews chapter 1, also known as the book of Leviticus in the New Testament. The connections are incredible. I often wonder if whoever wrote Hebrews, or in truth, because if you remember when I preached through Hebrews, I believe like many scholars that Hebrews is the recording of a sermon that was preached turned into letter form. I often wonder if whoever preached this was preaching through Leviticus when they preached this sermon. Because there's a lot there that connects the two books together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Speaking about Jesus Christ and he, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the power of His Word. And when He had made purification for sins, listen to that language, that's Leviticus language. When he had made purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The Old Testament language for the glory of God. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Flip one page, possibly, maybe just the page across Hebrews chapter 2. Looking at verses 9 and 10. But we do not see him. Who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Why? For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to where? To glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. We see this picture of the suffering of Christ as a pathway, not just to his glory, but to our restored glory as image bearers in Christ. Push forward, if you will. First Peter. Let's go to first Peter chapter one. Key verse, verse 21. We'll look at a couple around it.
In verse 17, we'll start there, but we want to get to 21. If you address as father the one who impartially judges. Now, pause. We're going to get to this, but it helps it to make sense. On this first day of this setting apart of the priest that we've just read in Leviticus 9, and this fire of God fell out from before his glorious presence and consumed the things that were already burning on the altar. Because remember, the altar was supposed to have a fire on it. And it mentions in the first parts of chapter 9 that they were putting stuff on the fire and burning things already. It's not that these offerings weren't burnt up, being burnt yet. They were, they were being burnt the way that they were supposed to be. And while they were on fire, a greater fire from the presence of God came and consumed everything almost instantaneously. As a demonstration, this just helps to understand what we're about to read. As a demonstration of God's wrath against the substitute rather than the priest and the people. Because friends, every time God's fire falls from heaven, it's a picture of God's wrath. That's what's happening. And so God threw his wrath against the thing on the altar and not on the people who had brought the sacrifice. Now let's look. Let's see this in 1 Peter 17. For if you address his father, the one who impartially judges, friends, he's judging. I know nobody likes to talk about it. It's not popular. I know a lot of uh, church growth courses will tell you to leave it off. But friends, God's a righteous judge. And you and I, apart from Christ, are wretched sinners. And the judgment of a holy God against wretched sinners is death and separation and all manner of other horrible things. That's just the way that it is. If that makes you incredibly uncomfortable, good. It's supposed to. There was a meme that was running around the circuit a few years ago. And across the top, it was this person in kind of one of those poses like, you know, just that attitude all over their face. And they said, only God can judge me. And the bottom panel was this guy looking completely terrified and stressed out and said, that should scare you to death. That that statement is true and right. Yes, God is the only one who can judge you and it should terrify you. Because God's a righteous judge and he judges impartially. And notice, according to each one's works, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but instead with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Leviticus. Just want to throw that out there. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times, these last days, for the sake of you. Listen, verse 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope would be in God. Friends, the appearing of the glory of God is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Flip a page or so. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. 
Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory is an attribute eternally given to Jesus Christ. It cannot be taken away from him. It cannot be diminished or sullied. It is an aspect of his person. He is the manifestation of the glory of the invisible God. And friends, I will boldly and bravely say it that in Leviticus chapter 9, when the fire fell from before the glory of God and people seemed to have some sort of an awareness of the glorious presence of God, they were having what's called a Christophany, a pre-appearing of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We often forget in Christ's humanity and his incarnation in the New Testament that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity who always has been and is and always will be. And when there's a physical manifestation of the glory of God, that is by nature Christ Jesus himself. Let's look then. Second Peter. Turn another page. Second Peter, chapter one. I want you to see verse 17 is key, but I want us to start in 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Pause. They're talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what Peter's talking about. I was there on the mountain when God pulled the veil back and he let us see what Christ is really like. And he reflected the majestic glory of God and the father himself announced to us where we could hear it. This is my beloved son. Now, as an aside, what I love about this text is if you keep reading it, Peter says, and even though we got all of that, I trust the word of God that's been given to us written down even more than my own experience on the top of Mount Transfiguration. And you should too. So anybody out there, this is for free, not totally related at all to the sermon that I'm preaching today. If what you're longing for is the next big, radical, weird, unusual experience from God, rather than the regular, everyday, mundane reading of the Bible, then you're missing it completely. Just want to throw that out there. Because if you want to see the glory of Christ, God has written it down for us that we might read about it. It's magnificent. Turn another couple of pages to Jude. Say, Philip, what chapter? Yes, Jude. Verse 24 is key, but we will look at verse 24 and 25. A great benediction, a great blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of what? His glory. 
Friend, hear me this morning. And I'll, I'll finish the text in a second, but hear me this morning. In the condition that you are in, apart from Jesus Christ, you would not be able to stand in the glorious presence of God. You wouldn't. You would be consumed by Him. The mountains themselves flee away from the greatness of our God. But the scripture teaches us that because of the work that Christ has done for us, because we're now veiled in the righteousness of Christ, we're clothed in his righteousness, we are co-heirs with him, we are seated on thrones with him, we share crowns of life and glory with him, we are now able to stand Faultless before our God who one day will wipe every tear from our eyes. And it says something that Moses never got to have. We will be able to look him in the face. And he will be our God and we will be his people. Notice what Jude says. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you do what? Stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be what? Glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And as we get close to closing this morning. Revelation. Flip all the way to the back, next to last chapter, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. This chapter begins with John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And he begins speaking about a holy city, a new Jerusalem. Now, I know that there's a lot of different interpretations on this. And if you've been around for a long time, you know that mine is that this is not actually about a city. Because we are a city set on a hill. That's what Jesus said. We can run through all of the construction metaphors throughout the scripture. And Jesus Christ and the prophets and the apostles are the great foundation. Jesus Christ himself being the great cornerstone upon which we are being built up into a building. And that we're longing for a city not made with hands. And we could just keep going through all the host of the rest of the stuff that the New Testament has to say about the city metaphor as it relates to the Christian life. This is not a city. I know some of you disagree with me. That's okay. Just pretend like I'm saying stuff that makes sense and we'll just move forward this morning. This is not about a city. It's about people. It's about Christ. It's about us and our relationship with him. And notice what it says when you get down to verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit To a great and high mountain. And showed me this holy city. This Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven. Having the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Jesus. Thank you. Someone was listening this morning. Amen. But because we're a community of faith. Everyone gets an A. From the answer of the one guy. Okay. Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. That's what it is. So having the glory of God and her brilliance was like very costly stone, stone of crystal and Jasper and had great high walls, 12 gates. And we could walk through all the description that it gives. But I want you to skip down to verse 22 because it talks about 
all of the, the beauty and the splendor of it. John trying to articulate what he's seeing with words that he can't quite comprehend himself. And you get down to verse 22. Listen to this very carefully. I saw no temple in it. By the way, that word translated temple is actually more appropriately translated sanctuary. Which is closer to the idea of the Old Testament notion of the tabernacle instead of the long-standing temple that was built by King Solomon and then rebuilt later on. It's this notion of the Levitical tabernacle. And I saw no sanctuary, temple, tabernacle in it. Why? For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Listen, for the glory of God has illumined it. All right, now listen, you want to say, Philip, I think you're stretching this glory of God as the person of Christ. Okay, the glory of God has illumined it. And how was it illumined? And its lamp, the thing doing the illuminating, is what? The lamb. It's illuminated by the glory of God, which is the lamp who is Christ. And the nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will do what? They will bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never close. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination, no one who lies shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the glory of Christ. This is the glory of Christ. This is the glory of God as found in the person of Christ, reaching its final fulfillment where there's this great participation of the glory that we were meant to have as image bearers, being fully redeemed and conformed to the image of Christ himself, co-heirs with Christ and partakers in his divine glory. So Philip, that's blasphemous. No, that's a great promise of the New Testament that we often neglect and avoid. It's remarkable. But I want us to note something back in Leviticus. If you'd like to turn back there, you can. But in Leviticus chapter 9, something that I've alluded to, but we have not discussed in great thoroughness. Leviticus chapter 9. In verse 24, there's this, at the end of 23, there's this glory of the Lord, and that's Christ. And then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. Friend, this morning, the presence of the glory of God means two things and two things only. This is where it becomes very, you got to wrestle with it. You got to wrestle with it. The presence of the glory of God means two things and two things only. First, It's either a precursor to the falling down of wrath against sin as happened here in the book of Leviticus. It happened to a substitute, but it was still the wrath of God falling down on something for sin. Or two, 
the loving acceptance of God for his people, welcoming them to share in his glory as redeemed image bearers. When God's presence shows up, that's the only two reasons why it shows up. When God himself manifests his glorious presence to humanity, he does so for one of two reasons. To bring wrath against sinners or a substitute for those sinners. Or to demonstrate his welcoming love and presence of his people that he has redeemed. That's the only reason God's presence shows up. It happens in the book of Leviticus that he was there for both reasons. God poured his wrath out on a substitute. And simultaneously, fire fell on the offering. Welcomed the people into his loving presence. And friends, everywhere that we just read in the New Testament, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus that displays The glory of God's presence. And friend, hear me this morning. Dear friend, hear me this morning. Both things happen at the cross. The wrath of God falls on a substitute. And God simultaneously welcomes his people into his loving presence. Jesus Christ, the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this event that happened in history. This unusual, unique occurrence that happened here in the book of Leviticus. That displays so plainly and clearly for us the majesty of Christ as your glorious presence in the cross and in his resurrection. Father, thank you. As we sang earlier and as we've read here and as we've seen through the text that we've read. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, God, that you have poured your wrath out on a substitute and have welcomed us into your presence. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is both the just and the justifier. He's the lawgiver and the law fulfiller. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. He's the one who pours out wrath and the one who forgives sin. Father, may we praise him in all of his glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we... No, that's not right. I invite you to, if you have not done so, to go and get uh, your elements as we prepare to share in the table together.
this morning as we get to share in the table together an apt picture of what we've been discussing from the book of